Алекса, стоп. Это подкаст about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowles. Oh my goodness, it's Alexa Stop and it's our Christmas special. Robert Belgrave, how the devil are you? Very well, thank you, Jim. Very well. And here with a fantastic audience. Let's have a big round of applause, please, from all of our lovely people. <laughs> Rob, what, what do you think uh, is the difference between canned applause and real applause? What, what do you think is the telling sign that some people are really here? Uh, oh, that's a good question. What was, uh, I tell you what, what did we say? Adam Graham, we shouted in an episode that you did, already a well off script. Um, <laughs> what was it? Uh, something about shark boys. <laughs> so if everyone together on the count of three can shout shark boy. One, two, three. Shark <laughs> It's a real fucking audience. It's a real <laughs> audience. There it is. There it is, listeners. Okay. Um, well, here we are with episode 10 and a bit of a celebration of the amazing year that we've had recording Alexa Stop. We thought, why not get some friends of the pod together at the Manifesto Studio in London and do a bit of a Christmas special? How are you feeling about that, Jim? I'm a little bit shaky. I, I, I think I've not had enough to drink. Um, but I, I don't know why I'm, I'm like that, but this red wine's going down fine. So I'm good. I'm excited. I'm excited about this episode. And do you know what? I just need to pass this to you. Thank you. You left it on the table. Oh, thanks. I'll just, I'll just pop that back there for Dan, for later. Good. Uh, uh, through, throughout the show, as uh, various tests of how well you've listened to every single episode. And if you don't laugh, it means you haven't passed the test. <laughs> In episode three, Dan referenced a hammer. And would you leave a hammer on a, f- on a table like you leave a phone on a table? And that's what that reference was. <laughs> <laughs> so promising start. Um, so if I have to explain every joke tonight I fucking will yeah and, <laughs> and we'll enjoy it too I wrote them I don't normally write them you wrote some of them I wrote some of them uh, the ones that they'll laugh at probably but um, <laughs> hey, so let's start by well let's start at this beginning shall we let's start with the amazing ten episodes or nine episodes that we previously recorded and a little run through of uh, the journey that we've been on so we started in that little glass box over there, for those of you that can see around the, uh, the pillars. Sounded terrible, that episode. It did sound terrible. Thank you to, to those of you that persevered with it. The reverb was uh, not acceptable to my militant standards. Um, and we had and I ep- edited that episode. <laughs> you did? The only one I've been allowed to edit. As soon as I edited it that badly, Rob's like, I'm taking over. And um, we had Sid from the bot platform with us, who talked all about chatbots and got quite animated about that. I think... The chatbot thing has kind of started to taper off a little bit, do you think? I don't know. I'm not seeing quite as much like obsessive hype about chatbots as I was eight months ago. I think the only person we could ask that question to would be Victoria. Well, apparently I saw a stat the other day that we're now going to have more conversations with bots than our spouses in the future, so oh, it God. is coming. So it hasn't tapered off, it's just become normal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Maybe I'm talking to bots and I don't even realise. Um, and from there, we had none other than Adam Graham with us. And it was uh, fresh off the plane from South by Southwest. Um, yeah, that was good fun. We talked a lot about Mars. We talked to Mars in episode two. Journeys to Mars. We did. We Life also talk- on Mars. We, we also talked about Mars CRISPR. Mars <laughs> And um, at, at this moment, I'm going to try a bit, of a bit of an audience row. Hello, Adam. How are you? Seamless. Very well, thanks, Rob. Very well. Good, good. Um, CRISPR, anything yet? Uh, I had some crisps a minute ago. I haven't, I haven't done any genetic splicing myself recently, no, no. And you're not involved in trying to genetically splice fucking pigs, are you? <laughs> no, I share, I share your disdain, your utter disdain for fat-free pigs. I think they are <laughs> a, a, an absolute thing of evil and pigs should be fat. It was you showing me muscly pigs, wasn't it, last yeah, week? horrendous, steroid-ridden Ca- muscly pigs. Catch up with Adam later, he, he's got photographs of muscly pigs on his phone. Uh, I don't know if they're at his house or what. But. I, I don't know where we go with that. Um, on our last episode, Jim got very animated about the fact that using CRISPR gene editing, uh, some people have decided that they're going to uh, remove the fat from pigs and make low-fat pigs. So um, if you don't know about CRISPR, you should check it out. It's incredible. Not so convinced by the low-fat pigs, though, it turns out. Episode three, we had Dan, who I'd known for a year and didn't know how to pronounce his name, but I do now. It's not Machen, it turns out, <laughs> which is good. Um, Dan talked a lot about 
the impact of technology on our brains that personally I thought was really interesting. He also made, made the joke about the hammer, which we, we enjoyed, but you know. Um, <laughs> uh, Jim, what were your thoughts on that? How, how do you feel about the whole tech, tech impact on our lives thing? Do you think that's changed much this year? I think actually there's a little bit more awareness uh, of that and then people are sort of thinking consciously a, a little bit more now. Uh, and also, uh, I think that uh, I really want to try the experiment where we try and feed people soup uh, in an endless kind of way, which is one of the other things we talked about on that episode. It, it was. Dan, do you think maybe you could recap the soup story for our, for our audience today? Yeah, sure. Um, so it was uh, an experiment that psychologists did where they fed people soup automatically from the bottom of a bowl and they, they ate sort of two-thirds more soup than they ordinarily would. So it's Facebook feed, essentially. That's probably the main culprit. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so next time you're on Facebook, scrolling away, just have a think about that tomato soup just filling up from the bottom. But it's the little dots, isn't it, Victoria? Yeah, it's the... You, you did an article of the way you mentioned the little dots that tell you... Yeah, that, like, builds the tension that something is about to come through, and then it's just your dad telling you to... Yeah, something irrelevant from your parents. <laughs> I feel like there's a story there you didn't yeah. just tell us. No, my dad actually just texted me saying, um, what do you want for Christmas? And um, guess what I'm having for tea tonight? And I just replied saying, what? And he said, a Greg sausage roll. So now I think I might be getting a Greg sausage roll for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and would that be a bad thing or a good thing? No, because I love Greg sausage rolls. So there we go. Have you ever felt confused by the fact that they're different prices in different locations? Yeah, it's so much cheaper up north. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to be a northerner in London sometimes. Are you bonding as northerners <laughs> right now? Is that what's happening? I'm a tenuous northerner. <laughs> Ryan Hall in the front row said, here, here. So there we go. Where do we go from there? So uh, after that amazing episode with Dan, which made me kind of quite thinky about the whole impact of tech on our lives. Term, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rob. I'm quite I was quite, today. I don't know. It, it, it gave me cause for introspection. There you go, Jim. Is that better? Um, you know, markedly, to be I, honest. I, I don't know. There was, uh, I can't remember the name of the app now. That's why I'm pausing. I'm trying to remember the name of the app. But there was an app you can install on your phone that tells you how much you use your phone every day. Uh, shout it out, somebody. Dan, do you remember? He doesn't remember either? Oh, well. It's awesome, but no one remembers what it's called. We can uh, edit it in in a really obvious way. Yeah. yeah, we'll fact check it in. I mean, I didn't install it because I didn't actually want to know. But it made me really sort of considerate of how much I use my phone every day. And We know what you're doing uh, on your phone, Rob. You're checking blockchain shit. Always blockchain shit. Yeah. <laughs> Non-stop. Moment. Thank you. Thank you, Lorenzo. It's called Moment. This yeah, is like I, crowdsourcing our corrections. <laughs> not live, isn't it? We don't have to do the corrections in the following episode anymore. We just knock them out live. It's fine. But yeah, I don't know. It just The episode with Dan just really made me... Gave me pause for thought on how much our phones have kind of invaded our lives and this idea that maybe we should try and bring ourselves back out of our screens and into the real world and that interface design of the future, social networks, etc., should kind of go in that direction. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I really enjoyed the episode, but it was definitely something that made me ponder my life choices somewhat, uh, much as I'm sure a bottomless bowl of soup would. <laughs> and, um, and then we had Emma and Julie on. Jim, do you want to talk about them? Yeah, so um, on episode four, we sort of had a bit of health tech special, and Emma Lawton is an amazing uh, woman who found out, she's a creative director, found out when she was 29 that she uh, had Parkinson's, and I suppose the biggest thing for her about that was that, her, that, that through the tremor, which was one of the symptoms of the condition for some people, was unable to draw, and she took part in a, a program on BBC Two called The Big Life Fix, where they developed some technology with Microsoft that... Um, had a kind of gyroscope in it and enabled her to uh, draw again. A, a really fa fascinating and awesome story. And uh, her, with uh, Julie Dodd also joined us, who's the Digital Transformation Director at Parkinson's. And just really exciting to talk about how uh, charities, how organisations are really starting to apply technology to changing people's lives, both in terms of how conditions might get cured, but actually more importantly, how people who are living with something like Parkinson's uh, can improve their day-to-day -day life. Yeah, and I, for those of you that haven't watched the episode, uh, I'm sure the BBC aren't very happy about this, but it is available on YouTube, and do go and check it out, and it's called The Big Life Fix, and it was just, like, I get goosebumps thinking about it, honestly, the episode, just this moment when Emma realises that thanks to, like, a sort of £100 piece of technology knocked up by this incredible inventor from Microsoft, she's going to be able to write her name again, and I think for a creative, that's... I mean, it's powerful for anybody, but particularly for someone whose entire identity is kind of formed around creativity and drawing and stuff. So I, I don't know, it was, um, it was really humbling talking to her about her experiences, not just about that, but also just the whole, like, getting Parkinson's at 29. Like, I didn't even know you could get Parkinson's at 29, personally, until I met Emma. And so. I, think, I think what's interesting for, for us and, and, and someone that, you know, 
I guess, runs a creative agency, and she was creative director at um, President. We were on Curtain Road, which is super, super close to our office. It just made it very real. Right. Because it's like, well, that could be any of us. Uh, and, and, and I think that was one of the things that, that really sort of, I guess, uh, uh, connected with me in that episode. Yeah. And, and she's such an amazing, positive and fun oh, she's person. She's just incredible. Well. Just an all-round incredible person. She does a lot of speaking. So if you get the chance to go and see Emma speak, please do. Um, she, but the thing that, again, something stayed with me from that episode beyond just the amazing experience of talking to her, and it was that her outlook changed. So when she got Parkinson's, and she talked quite honestly and sort of earnestly about this with us and said, you know, at first I just thought my life was over and I just kind of recluded into my house and just didn't want to see anybody. And and I guess that's the natural reaction, isn't it? Like you, you feel disabled, right? And rightly so. You know, you suddenly can't do this thing that is such a key part of your life. And um, somehow she just had this sort of eureka moment which changed her life where she decided, you know what? I'm not going to say no to everything anymore. I'm just going to start saying yes to everything. And, and I that thought, included like going on some crazy like boating trip and things yeah. like that with someone you'd never met before. Yeah, sounds <laughs> dangerous if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if if Jim Bowes rang you up and asked you to go on a on a longboat trip with him, you'd probably probably oh, turn him down. Rob, <laughs> come boating with me. Yeah, <laughs> I'll look after you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that, that's exactly how it went apparently. But but she went and, and she made it back in one piece. Um, so I don't know. Say yes to everything, guys. I just think that's a, a good a good sort of motto to live by, and 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 was really a kind of positive and upbeat moment from that episode. So Rob, tell me about episode five. Episode five. So Do you we want me to take the saying Zillia part of this. <laughs> the second name uh, uh, of our guest that I had real trouble pronouncing. It, you'll see why when you see it spelt. So um, we had Pete Trainer and and. Let's try that again. We had Pete Trainer and Zillia Litvin with us, who were both incredible, um, talking about kind of, I guess, kind of similar-ish topics to Dan, like the impact of technology on our brains, but um, kind of with a bit of an AI slant and the, the work that they're both doing. So Zillia runs uh, a startup called Psyapps, or Psycaps, I think it's called. Yeah. And um, it's basically a suite of apps that's designed to try and help people just be a bit more mindful about the impact that technology is having on their brains and she's done a lot of work with particularly with young women around addiction and uh, and instagram and, and some of that stuff and the whole kind of like self-esteem problem which apparently is is a problem with both genders but particularly with young women um so yeah i think she was just an amazing woman and and had previously been a model and then had kind of trained as a psychologist and, and started a tech company so she was incredible and uh, many people in the room know uh, Pete, the waistcoat trainer, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the wonderful man that he is. Uh, I love him dearly. He, you know, he's done some incredible stuff, including starting a, a I suppose, a chatbot ultimately, but um, building this platform called Sue, which was designed to help prevent male suicide and is actually being used in the wild today. Uh, you know, and his whole mission was, if I can save one person's life, then it's worth it. And again, I. God, we're getting, I'm going deep. Jim's being funny and I'm getting deep, but um, I don't know. I think the work that Pete's doing is truly incredible. And this, this podcast, let's remind everybody, is about how technology changes our lives. And you know what? If technology saved your life and stopped you committing suicide, I think that probably qualifies, right? So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, it's difficult because now I feel like bringing it back to the waistcoats is <laughs> No, let's go there. Come on. Uh, bring it back up. Bring it back up. But, so everyone here is like, oh, Pete, the waistcoat trainer. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But like when I said, oh, you're the waistcoat guy, he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> Does he always wear waistcoats? Always. Always, yeah. And it's a really lovely story. They're actually his granddad's waistcoats. that He inherited them. And it's, it's a really sweet story. But I didn't realise it was an unknown thing because everyone had told me about this before I'd met him. It's, tr- it's, tr- it's, it's totally true. Jim just bowled straight in with, oh, you're the waistcoat guy. And, and Pete was stone-faced. Just, what? <laughs> what? So from episode five, we went on to invite none other than Lawrence Weber, who can't be with us today because it's his birthday. But let's, go, let's all give Lawrence a little happy birthday, shall we? So uh, happy birthday, Lawrence, everybody. Happy birthday, happy birthday Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> I believe at Kamarama, they give you your birthday off. So I hear, and, and Lawrence lives on an island. Somebody's shaking their head. Um, And so Lawrence is having a a seafood dinner with his lovely wife and is very sad that he couldn't be with us tonight. He's a a big fan of the pod and and really enjoyed being on on with us. And we talked about blockchain and how it's going to help people buy better fish, which was an interesting sort of conflation of of two topics there. But um, Lawrence works in innovation. So Lawrence is the uh, managing partner of innovation at Karmarama, which is part of Accenture Interactive, has been in the innovation space since before it was cool. Is it cool now? I think it's cool. 
Lots of, uh, lots of innovation people here tonight, very silent about that. Um, <laughs> Rob, you know how I like to get you to define things? Yeah, what am I defining now? What is innovation? Oh, what is innovation? <laughs> he went there. Poured myself a, 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 a filled up glass of red wine, <laughs> asked a simple question and leaned back. <laughs> you're, you're getting a snapshot of how this podcast goes. What is innovation? Doing cool new stuff. That's innovation, right? But is it? But is it? Victoria, pushing what's the boundaries. Yeah, what do you think? Oh, I'm saying nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Staying quiet. No, I'm, I don't know. How would I define innovation in a more serious way? I, yeah, I think it's, it's pushing the boundaries. It's, it's doing something uncertain. It's, you know, it's challenging yourself to try and think differently and create something new in the world, which I think is very important and very valuable. So there you go. Thanks. Good enough? Pretty earnest. Yeah? All right, cool. So um, what else did we talk about with Lawrence? We talked about the whole blockchain thing. I'm a bit of a blockchain nerd, so... You got to really f- fulfil your I blockchain did. dreams, didn't you, I, on that one? I had a lot of fun. Rob, what, what's blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> it's data stored in blocks in a chain. There you go. Um, Come on, you can do better. Uh, yeah, all right, I'll get Is that it. how you tell your mum? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and she has no better idea than when I started. So um, what is blockchain? Blockchain is, in my opinion, and I, I'll, I'll preface that, it's the dot-com boom of our generation. I think that... So I'm 33, so I'd missed the opportunity to really capitalise on the dot-com boom. He has to get the dig in, doesn't he, that I was part of the original <laughs> dot-com boom. I worked at an original startup. We had our own Red Bull. There we go. Called Fanglobe. <laughs> <laughs> so what is blockchain? It's, I think there's a lot of misconception about it. It's, it's kind of a new way of writing software. Blockchain in and of itself is not a thing. It's a kind of theoretical way of building software. And it stands on the shoulders of the giants that are the internet and the widespread connectivity that's available now and all the infrastructure out there. So without the internet, we wouldn't have blockchain. But we're in this place now where this idea this, that is going to be incredibly disruptive has come to the fore. And people are scrabbling around all over the place trying to implement all these different weird and wonderful things with blockchain, which are genuinely going to change the world. And so honestly, all of you here tonight, everyone listening, if there's one thing I would say, it's go and learn about it, start doing your reading, because this is going to change everything. The biggest and most notable implementation is called Bitcoin, which is a currency implementation, also known as a cryptocurrency. Bitcoin right now is tearing up the financial markets and it, it frankly is kind of like a new store of sovereign wealth. It's the first new asset class in a decade or, or, or two. To be and fair, it has dropped 5% since we started recording. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I've no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd say that to sort of shit Rob up. I'll go and have a look in a minute. He's definitely got a few positions that would hurt him if that was the truth. Yeah. Um, true story. But, but yeah, um, so Bitcoin is something that everyone should learn about. But, but there's more to it than Bitcoin. Like blockchain, you know, the, this thing that Lawrence and, and Jim and I started really talking about on our episode was actually how it's going to make a difference in the supply chain world. And, you know, the fish thing is, is a, bit of a bit of a cheap joke. But... Uh, Waitrose are rumoured to be doing a partnership deal at the moment whereby you'll be able to walk into any Waitrose in the country and using a blockchain implementation, pick up a packet of fish off the shelf and see every single step in the supply chain right down to the boat it was caught on, right? So in terms of that like provenance of, of, of produce, I think it's an incredible thing. And I've heard every fisherman's going to learn a dance that's uh, specific to them <laughs> and it'll uh, pull up an augmented reality version of that dance in, as a video. <laughs> Did you know that, Rob? Today I learned. Today I learned. So um, you can confirm that, can't you? Yes. You know Technology is wonderful. <laughs> now that's innovation, right? If ever I heard it. And um, have you tried to dance in fishing clothes? <laughs> fucking difficult. <laughs> Jim just having another swig of wine now at this point. I didn't know it was going to be this weird. <laughs> Uh, and from there, we had Nick Earl from Hyperloop on, and, and this one really blew my mind. So um, one of the guys on my yeah one of the guys on my board uh, said to me casually, "Oh, you're doing this great tech podcast, right? Would you like to interview the the boss of Hyperloop?" Like I might say no. So Nick is this incredible guy who's worked in technology his whole career. He was the boss of the cloud program for Cisco for 10 years. He was a big part of HP Enterprise. And I asked him quite bluntly, I think it was off mic actually, but I asked him quite bluntly, do you need to work, Nick? Because I think that's always an interesting question to ask somebody. And he said, no, I don't, you know. And um, he was... like I got in early on Bitcoin. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, but, you know, not early enough. And um, he, he'd retired, right? Like, this was the really fascinating part of his story, is he'd retired, and 
he was in his, I think, mid-60s, sort of 64, 65, and he'd been six months into his retirement, and he got this opportunity to come back and, and work in Hyperloop, and it was just such an exciting and amazing opportunity, he couldn't turn it down. And I was pretty skeptical about Hyperloop, and I know many people still are. Like, There's a lot of, um, I consider it FUD, but there's a lot of stuff online about, oh, Hyperloop's a theory that can't ever be proven and won't work, and it's just an Elon Musk wet dream, and it's never going to happen. But... Um, and I, you know, I was kind of skeptical. Like I'm a, I'm a science guy, and if I can't see something proven and working, I'm always a little bit of a pessimist about it. But Jim's waiting to make a cheap gag. Come on, Jim, what are you gonna say? I'm stuck on Elon Musk wet dream. Okay. <laughs> so you did read my face correctly. Yeah. I'm just like, there's some things that you say sometimes that you can't unsay. No. And now I'm like imagining what that is, and it's like spraying out batteries and solar panels all over the place. Yeah. Come on, carry on. So, um, so Nick gave a kind of very, very earnest interview about Hyperloop, and we re- we ended up recording like an hour and a half, which we had to cut to forty minutes. But I was mesmerised. I was hanging on his every word, and he is someone who's clearly had a lot of media training because we'd ask him like one question, and he'd just talk for half an hour in a really sort of. He got more uh, words in than me, which you know I think contractually we need to put a stop to. It. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I, you know, it's a fascinating thing because one of the, the my favourite questions I have: what, what were his technical challenges he was trying to sort of solve? And uh, it was things like the airlock. Yeah, and and switching, like the whole, you know, we take switching for granted between different tracks, but when you have to do it at, you know, 900 miles an hour or whatever, it turns out it's quite a lot more difficult than it is on on the tube. So uh, they think they figured that out, but that's one of the things they haven't actually cracked yet. But um, uh, about a week after we did the interview with Nick, uh, Richard Branson and co piled in and uh, invested in the business. And it's now Virgin Hyperloop, which I thought was a really nice rubber stamp of of credibility. So, you know, really exciting times for them. Two days before the interview, they'd raised $85 million. So it was a really good time to talk to them. It was a really fascinating, exciting interview, actually. And and, um, me being slightly serious for a moment, uh, I think uh, the first time I'd sort of discussed Hyperloop and thought, actually, this is something that's going to happen. Yeah, and you know, London to Edinburgh in 25 minutes or 12 minutes when they get it really up to speed. So it'll completely change everything. It'll change the way we build cities. It'll change how we live and work. Like I, I, you know, I like London, but I don't particularly like having to live in London. I'd much rather live in the countryside somewhere. If I could blast into town in 10, 15 minutes, I think I would. And I think most people would actually. So, you know, and freight and everything else. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please go and check it out. It's absolutely incredible. That was episode seven. Do you know where that is, Rob? It's because you don't live in East London. (laughs) Just saying. Wow. So uh, the audience didn't agree. Um, so episode eight, episode eight, Rob and I went on holiday together. We did. It was lovely. I, I think that deserves a new. Rob and I went on a holiday together. <laughs> it was romantic, wasn't it? It was very romantic. I, I taught, uh, we were at uh, Phil Jones's house, who runs an event called Podge, uh, and Phil Jones was our guest on that episode. We recorded it in his home, Casa Philippe. Uh, and uh, I did 80s aerobics workouts in the morning on the terrace. Uh, anyone was welcome to join. And, and I did something I never thought I would do on holiday, which is go to an 80s aerobic workout <laughs> class. So um, you've people never looked, seen him happier, guys. I'll say that pe- now. People looked at me like I was just making that up for effect. Like, no, no, I actually did 80s aerobics classes in the morning on holiday. He did indeed. And, it, and great fun it was too. But, um, you know, what did we talk to Phil about? We talked about his amazing journey. So Phil grew up on a council estate in Manchester and had this incredible career, past tense he's still working, has had or is having an incredible career working through what became digital, but work kind of started off in typography and kind of saw digital arrive and, and you know, it was, really, it was really interesting talking to him about how he managed to evolve and a lot of his peers didn't. And so there were a lot of people that kind of got stuck being typographers and then creative agencies and didn't manage to kind of ride the wave with digital. And he originally was an apprentice on the Monotype Press. He was. Monotype's uh, London head office is the f- uh, two floors above us here at, at Manifesto. So yeah, it felt close to home talking about Monotype and and, and the typesetting industry and how he adapted, it was good. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess it was worth sitting inside with the curtains closed on a 30 degree day in Portugal to record the episode, but it was fun, I enjoyed it. Yeah, we, were, we hit the beach later. And, uh, and so last but by no means least, we very recently recorded episode nine with Mr. Nigel Gwilliam, who's here with us tonight. And uh, I heard someone on arrival today say that they really enjoyed the episode, but they found it incredibly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> That's Nigel. I'm going to go find Nigel in the audience, Jim. What, do you th- what did you think about episode nine? I, I thought it was, for me, it was a bit of a, a stretch in terms of uh, highbrowness for me. I mean, because the opportunity to add cheap jokes when talking about Russia's involvement in elections was sort of slightly limited. So all I can say is thank God for that CRISPR section so I could, like, get angry about pigs. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, Nigel, it was, I mean, it was quite recent, so I feel like hopefully it's fresh in our, our listeners' minds. How are you feeling about the whole thing on reflection? Uh, what would you tell people to be looking out for? Are you feeling positive about the changes that are starting to happen? I mean, Twitter has started kicking the Russians off their platform for advertising, for example, and things like that. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't really think there's a lot of significant positive signs. So there's, there's, there's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's, one's cheered up. I'm obviously, I'm obviously <laughs> the audience a little bit there. But it's actually true. It's all, it's all <laughs> darkness. It's all darkness ahead. There's some hope, but uh, it's no, going to no, die no. soon. No, um, no uh, you know, it, awareness <laughs> of the problem is uh, the first stage in solving the problem. But um, it's really most people still, I don't think, truly appreciate the scale of it. Um, and more and more has come out since in the, in the weeks that followed, haven't it? So um, what's fascinating is that how it then gets picked up by um, the politicians in the states and in the UK, who the Russians are in the background laughing as our politicians argue with each other and the US politicians argue with each other and they make merry meddling. So pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty bleak. <laughs> pretty bleak. Cheery way to move into our interview. Yeah. So, thanks Nigel, thanks for that. Um, yeah, yeah, well, you know, why not, why not? Um, I'd like to do some jazz hands to cheer everyone up. Yeah, I think you should. It's a very good radio format. <laughs> and so... <laughs> They like that one. <laughs> and so, well, that was the news, right, I guess? I mean, that was kind of our news segment. It was a bit of a recap that of was the, the year old so news, far. That was the old news. That was the old news. Indeed. So, um, right, I think it's time to welcome Victoria to actually have a chance to say something and to do, go through a bit, of a bit of interview action. So um, let's just have a quick pause and, and have a sip of our beers, and then we'll get going. Should we top up my wine? Yeah. And we're back with none other than Victoria Buchanan, an incredible futurist from the Future Laboratory. Welcome to the Electroshop studio and, uh, well, the live studio, Victoria. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? You well? Yeah, I'm good. Cool. Um, Jim? Yeah, well, you really exciting to have you here. I think what a lot of people would want to know uh, is, what is a futurist? Um, the short answer is a person who studies the future and makes predictions about it based on current trends that they're seeing. Um, so Arthur C. Clarke in 1964 at the World um, Fair actually described being a futurist as discouraging and hazardous occupation. Um, yeah, and it's almost kind of this idea that we're at the time of year where everyone's starting to look forward into what's happening next year. Um, and yeah, I get to spend every single day kind of almost living in the future, imagining what we might be buying five years, 10 years, 20 years time. And do you think you'll still be a futurist next year? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Jim. He's been, he's been planning that joke for about three weeks. <laughs> True story. <laughs> but, you, but you can answer it as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that'll do as the answer. <laughs> and so um, one of the things that we talked about a bit when we met for coffee before, as sort of prep for the show was about the journey that you'd been on to find your way into futurism. And I, I think it's a bit like digital. It's one of those things. I don't think kids are sat at school going, I'm going to be in digital. And I think futurism is kind of a similar thing, right? So you, you talked a bit about how people often find their way there via a fashion degree as you did. So maybe you could talk a bit about how, why that is and how that all kind of comes together. Yeah, trend forecasting as an industry um, kind of... I guess when you think about trends, the fashion industry was one of the first industries to really kind of take that and turn trend forecasting into a tool that they were using. Um, and it kind of used to be the idea that the trend forecaster was almost the tastemaker and setting the idea of what we would be buying in the future. Um, and I think what's really happened over the last... Um, 10 years is that the role of the trend forecaster has kind of changed you're no longer kind of setting what the trends are going to be because consumers are doing that peer-to-peer -peer themselves now um, so yeah a lot of people get into trend forecasting through the world of fashion because fashion kind of has this legacy of trend forecasting um, and yeah you kind of it is quite interesting that you don't really hear about it or learn about it until you get to university a lot of the time. I think it's almost a skill that we should actually be teaching to children in school. Um, but a lot of us kind of don't really know what futurism is other than things like sci-fi and books that we've read. Um, but yeah, there is this kind of booming industry around predicting the future and helping brands understand. Do you think that's because it's all speeding up? 
do you think that's why there's kind of it's more in demand now because with technology advancing at the speed that it is, is everything's just kind of changing so much and and so there's that kind of I guess almost fear right of not being ready for the future do you think that's part of it or yeah absolutely it? I think the velocity of change is getting faster and faster um but I also think we've seen so much disruption since digital kind of came around that everyone is now panicking that their business model is going to be disrupted. So everyone's kind of looking inwards and saying, yeah, you know, to be ready for the future, we need to start actually anticipating um, those kind of global macro drivers that are going to come in and um, change how our consumers are actually behaving tomorrow. What, what's the best thing about looking at the future as a job? That's a good question. That's a big question. Yeah, that is a good question. I think just getting, getting to spend every single day reading about the amazing innovations that people are creating and seeing how they're changing people's lives, for me, is, yeah, like I get to spend every single day, you know, reading, 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 making myself hopefully smarter. Yeah, I think that's a real privilege for me. And do you ever get a brief um, from a company where you're like, this is a great brief, but oh my God, you as an organisation are so not ready to adapt to the future. Do you ever sort of like have to sort of give difficult advice or do you, do you, do you focus on the future completely or do you sort of also do anything that relates it to where they're currently at? Or Yeah, all of the time. So Future Lab's motto is de- to dare to know. And I think a lot of the time with the clients that we work with, we have to have quite uncomfortable conversations about what the future is going to be and whether they actually have a role to play in that. But I, th- I think what's really interesting is that a lot of the brands that we're consulting with now want to know about trends and, you know, what's coming, what's going to be trendy, what's going to be kind of hip and cultural. Um, and a lot of the time it's almost the business model itself is going to change completely and they're kind of almost asking the wrong questions sometimes. I can, imagine, can you imagine that in a pitch meeting or rather in a, in a sort of audit review? Right, so I've, uh, I've gone off and I've done some futurism for you guys and uh, the news is uh, it's not good. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Yeah, sorry guys. And I've worked out what the future is, but it was just too good an opportunity to share with you. So I've started that company. (laughs) No, seriously, all of the businesses that I could have set up that I wish I had, the candle subscription brand, the um, boutique hipster gin brand, it just goes on and on. I never invested in Bitcoin. Like I just let all of these opportunities pass me by. I should have been starting these businesses on my own. But you wrote the document that said that you should definitely do this. But you helped someone else, so there we go. Um, so we thought it might be fun to look at some of the stuff that you guys put in your report from 2017, right? So um, you mentioned that this is something that the Future Lab does every year where you do this kind of big report on key trends that you see for, for the year ahead. Um, and we, we sort of, put, you kindly sent across some of that material for Jim and I to have a look at, and we picked out some stuff that we thought was really interesting. So um, there was cheap jokes associated with. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest you, you, those, you, you can imagine who picked those out but uh, um, we thought we'd start with the functionalism reborn stuff so um, yeah it, it was kind of an interesting topic and um, you know this was kind of the whole thing about how there's been this era of open plan offices and uh, ping pong tables uh, I'm looking I, just at like to say, the manifesto yeah. ping pong table right now this is uh, manifesto's agency ping pong trophy <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but this trend was about how the era of uh, ping pong tables in offices is over. Um, so I feel like this could be one of those awkward conversations where the futurist tells me that uh, my business model is dead. Victoria? Um, yeah, so this trend is what I like to call the tyranny of fun. Um, hipster offices with slides and nap pods um, have kind of become this blueprint for Silicon Valley and startup tech firms. Um, It's almost this idea that you kind of create office spaces that are purposefully chaotic. Um, But what we actually have started to see was that these types of spaces create a lot of ambiguity for employees. So it's that idea of the workspace and the social space starts to really blur. You know, that's kind of what Google were trying to do, keep you there 24 hours a day so that you never leave. Um, And what these spaces do is that they kind of create this environment where people are struggling to find focus that leads to declining happiness levels that leads to productivity stagnating um so yeah we've really seen in the last year architects and designers are actually looking for more simple ways to actually kind of induce concentration um and actually kind of support that idea of mental health and creative flow in the office space one of the things i know that adam graham uh, thinks is a great idea for this sort of stuff is microdosing lsd yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or macro dosing, apparently. Apparently, great for focus. 
um, and and I, I I saw Jim catch someone's eye during that little segment, and I hope it was one of his team who's here tonight who really loves the ping pong table. So uh, it's going. <laughs> this is all going to be utilitarian. It's going to look like uh, you know a communist country in the eighties before you know it. And and so the second trend that we picked out was this idea of identity tourism, and this one I was fascinated by because I, I consider myself to be pretty well read, and I'd never bumped into this before. So. Um, Tell me, what is it? Like, what is identity tourism? So identity tourism was a trend about brands tapping into more empathetic experiences that kind of give people this idea that they can start to explore other people's identity. So I think, you know, when we talk about technology, we've heard a lot over the last year around this idea of empathy and how can you kind of create this feeling of empathy and let people actually experience what it's like to live another person's life. Um, so we were, we've kind of seen over the last year, I guess, especially through virtual reality, this idea that you can, you know, almost swap your gender and see what it's like to be the day in the life of um, the, other, the other gender or, you know, experiences like New York Times did this kind of virtual reality experience where they took you to these... Um, you know, war-torn places that you would never actually get access to so that you can actually empathise with the lives of the people that live there. And, of course, virtual reality creates this really um, kind of immersive experience, so it's very kind of visceral. So that was kind of where the empathy um, idea was coming through there. And there was an app that I saw in the report, which I, I, I went to try and find, and I think it must have been pulled because I couldn't find it anywhere. Do correct me if it's still available and we'll tell everyone where to go and try it out. But it was an app for social media where you could choose a celebrity and see social media as if you were that person. So you could use Twitter for the day as if you were Kim Kardashian, right? And obviously you can't tweet as her, thank God, but, um, or, well, actually maybe that would be an improvement, but um, you can't you know, you can't post anything, but you can receive the experience of getting, you know, 400,000 likes in 30 seconds when you post something. And, and Jim and I were talking about it and I was like, why would anyone want to do that? But, you know, Jim had some, some views on that which I thought was interesting. It's an incredible dopamine hit, especially if each of them comes through individually. I mean, your just phone's going to be flying, isn't it? Well, I suppose the thing about that is, I, I mean, if, if you were going to be, a, would, would, would you be Kim Kardashian? I'll start with you, Victoria. If you were going to be a celebrity, who would you choose to be? Um, well, if I was going to use that app, I would like to experience what it's like to be Donald Trump on Twitter. Because the oh. point of that app was actually um, inspired by everything that Monica Lewinsky went through when she was being trolled. So it was the idea that you could actually live a day in the life of feeling what it's like to receive all of that negativity online. Uh, so it was more about trying to raise awareness for the, for the negative side. Okay, yeah. interesting. And Rob, if you were going to be any celebrity on social media, who would you choose? Um... I don't know, maybe like Craig David or someone like that. <laughs> I can I can see why. The dulcet tones of Craig David, you know, with the looks to match. I mean, what's not to like? Yeah, his life in LA, and he also had the hard times, right? You know. Yeah. And I think in his song with Sting, he really encapsulated that: the rise and fall. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, I so, like that hand. Yeah. And so, um, so that was identity tourism, fascinating concept, something I bumped into for the first time from your report. Next up was this idea of Veritas Media, which uh, kind of c collides nicely with Mr. Williams' uh, dystopian views of the world. Um, we, we talked in our last episode about fake news, computational propaganda, the influence that, you know, the reported influence that the Russians have had on, on politics and, and the kind of agendas of, of the West. How do you feel about this? Do you, do you think it's progressed through 2017? You guys forecast it as a trend, right? So you were right about that. It's definitely been a big thing this year. How, how do you feel it's kind of, where is it, where's it at now, almost a year in? Yeah, I think more and more people are recognising that we live in a climate of post-truth and that they're looking for ways now to verify um, the veracity of their sources, people are starting to demand accountability. There is kind of this idea that, you know, we expect transparency and I think it's kind of a double-edged sword sometimes. Like we talk about, you know, people are becoming more demanding, but at the same time, probably some people have absolutely no idea how to identify whether something is fake news or not. Um, so we've actually seen over the last year lots of new platforms. So the co-founder of... Um, Wikipedia has launched a new platform, which they're saying it's being rigorously fact-checked. But also lots of new technologies that almost, I think, are kind of like the scarier side of where this trend is starting to go. That, you know, now we're seeing the first ever technology that can clip together video and make it seem like somebody's actually um, speaking. So, you know, you could almost create a video of Barack Obama giving a speech and it's not actually real. And how do you then start to tell what's 
Bacon, yeah. what's not? They reckon Isn't that like a set boy. Yeah. <laughs> Sadly not. They, yeah, I, I saw some of that, and they reckon that it is going to actually feature in the next election, right? Like they think the next wave of fake news propaganda will have this sort of simulated video in it, which is terrifying. I was listening to a radio advert that where they'd used a, a voice simulation to be the not true and the true parts, and so one was a voiceover artist, one was a, a computerized voice, and uh, it was meant to sell you insurance, I think, to be honest, but. Um, <laughs> get some insurance against this bad shit that's definitely going to happen, I think was the message that I took away from it. But um, I, th I think that it goes to show that, 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 yeah, authenticity is a big theme. And, and it's interesting, actually, I think I've probably been influenced by this script because I had to do a predictions for 2018 this week and I actually said that this was going to be a trend next year. So uh, I'm, I'm a good year behind you. It's fine. Trends are all about evolution. Yeah, I might use that. <laughs> Saved you there. Saved you there. Um, and so from Veritas Media, the optimized self and the quantified self was something that we thought was was a really interesting trend and has definitely, definitely been a big thing this year. Um, I know Pete Trainer, who we've, who we've given some love to tonight already, believes passionately as a, a sort of expert in the field of AI that the reason that the advances in AI and machine learning are possible is because of the quantified self movement and the fact that we're all carrying around a data collection device in our pockets all day long with all kinds of different ways of, of storing and, and saving data. Um, something that you put in your trend report, which we absolutely loved, was gyroscope, which we'd never bumped into. And Jim and I are going to commit tonight that for all of next year, we are both going to use gyroscope. Um, it's this incredible service where it stores all of these different data points on you. And at the end of the year, you can order like all of these really beautiful, like, I guess it's like a yearbook, right? Like a printed high, really high production quality yearbook, these beautiful posters that show sort of spark lines of your most, where you've been traveling the most and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's just a really beautifully curated appraisal of your life, right? And you can get posters as well. So you can show all of your cycling and it sort of heat spot marks where you, the roads that you cycle on the most. And you can put your Git commits into it as well and connect all kinds of different sort of data sources to it. Uh, yeah, so yeah. You, know, you can click on, you went to the yoga studio 35 times in this example that we're looking at. Uh, what some, on one of the ones I looked at, they'd only been to the gym 15 times a year. I'm like, I went 15 times last month. Come on, dude. Take me <laughs> on. And, and that brings us to one of the reasons why the quantified self is so popular is because people love to show off about it, right? So, um, <laughs> but... Say what? <laughs> <laughs> but, Victoria, talk a bit about this right, idea. Do, do you want to punch my abs? <laughs> punch my abs off? I, I, I mean, I can, I can attest from the 80s workout that we really did do that Jim is, is working very hard at the moment to, to look as good as he does. But, um, Victoria, talk a bit about this trend. What are your thoughts on it? So this is, yeah, I guess the kind of idea that more and more people are starting to take interest in their health. Um, and we actually, when we first, you know, the idea of the quantified self has been around for quite a while now. Um, when we were first talking about it at Future Lab, we were doing interviews with this guy who was doing it all by hand and he was writing, every, you know, doing all of these measurements and writing everything down on paper. Now you've got these incredibly powerful apps that are increasingly powered by artificial intelligence that can measure the context you know, ask you questions, you're recording, you're logging, it's creating this really kind of holistic picture. Um, and I think what's, you know, where it's starting to get interesting is that it's now making it me measurable. There's more and more research being done in the kind of neuroscience space. Um, and it's kind of putting people's kind of health back in their hands in a way. Yeah, I, I think... It's great. And one of the things we did as on the show this year was some quantified self tests. So um, Jim did a, a, a gluten, or was it wheat? It was wheat, wasn't it, Jim? You did a wheat intolerance test live on the, on air. I did. Which was interesting. And then I... It was really hard getting blood out of my finger. It was. It was quite interesting watching a man try and squeeze blood out of his hand live on air. Um, and then I did the 23andMe DNA test and did my, my results reveal on air, which was a really interesting experience um, because in hindsight, I was quite sort of lackadaisical about it and actually it could have been really awful. So um, yeah, but I don't know. I found it quite empowering to kind of learn a bit more about myself in that way. And, and so yeah, that, uh, we'd never heard of gyroscope before. I, I don't know if anyone in the audience had seen it, but it's, it's an incredible tool. Um, yeah, and I love that they call it an operating system for the human body. <laughs> I, of Quite course creepy. they do. Yeah, of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> it's not creepy at all. It's fine. It's totally fine. The data isn't all in the cloud somewhere being analyzed by somebody. But um, I don't know. I think, look, as someone that works in technology, I can assure you that they've got all your data anyway. So you might as well get the best out of it. And uh, <laughs> Robert, Zach shared 674 photos last year. And look how beautifully curated and they were, too. They were all generic eye stock photos. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the whilst not the lowest price point on iStock, 
would only attract a medium price. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, However, indeed. he didn't seem to share any which were people of different races holding a white placard that you could fill in in Photoshop. He's <laughs> <laughs> missed the boat there. But, um, so yeah, we're gonna, so Jim and I are going to do a gyroscope for next year and at the end of the year after we'll release it. Which reminds me actually of a manifesto competition. We're going to have a competition at manifesto next year which is all of us are going to take a single photograph Add it to an iStock account and see who makes the most money. Oh, and that's a great idea. Who makes the most money is winner takes all. Winner, ta- winner gets all the pot of all the photographs we've taken. That is a manifesto competition next year. So, um, stock photo sweepstake, I guess? Yes, yeah, stock photo sweepstake, yeah. Game we could have an interagency version of that. Yeah. that uh, winner takes all. Yeah. That's the people nodding. That. Okay, maybe, maybe that's the thing. So that's the quantified self. Let's talk about future brands. I think future brands is fascinating. You guys run this thick, this survey, I guess you would call it, would you? Uh, an index. An index. That's a much yeah. nicer way of putting it. Tell us about it. Yeah, of course. So um, everyone's probably quite familiar with, you know, there's lots of different indexes that come out every year that, you know, measure how cool a brand is, measure how much it's loved by consumers. But at Future Lab, obviously, we are focused on the future. So we wanted to create an index um, around you know how prepared are brands for the future and can we measure that um, so future fitness is an indicator of how ready a brand is for the future how well positioned it is to take advantage of the trends that will affect us all in the next five to ten years um, and I think you know that's really important because change is happening faster than ever um, but yet at the same time brands are thinking more short term and um, so it's really like a health checkup for brands and when we kind of Think about it, you know, how many brands are really preparing for environmental catastrophe, financial slowdown, workplace automation, um, or even just a new challenger to their category. So FutureFit measures kind of a set of key indicators um, in order to, yeah, do a kind of health checkup, really, to see whether brands are actually ready for the future. And I think what, what I found really interesting is that there are brands in the same category as each other where uh, someone didn't do nearly as well as some of the others. So I think if I, if I think of an example, and you can correct me if I'm totally wrong, but for example, I don't think Amazon did nearly as well as some of the other big tech players. It, so, so things to do with transparency and, and, and people's sort of like... Uh, a lot of it was quite ethical stuff, wasn't it? sustainability. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a number of the fashion brands do super well uh, as well. In, 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 or if you, so I think Nike... Uh, right yeah, so I think... Probably what's an interesting thing to do is if everyone thinks about three brands that they think, if you were going to say three brands that you think are most prepared for the future, who do you think that is? Um, So the six behaviours that we look at in order to measure whether someone's fit for the future. So number one is about agility, whether someone is able to quickly take steps to kind of bring about that change. And that's things like, you know, do brands have financial liquidity? Are they open to change? Are they kind of, yeah, if change comes along, how easily are they in a position to seize that opportunity? The second behaviour is around long-term planning. So how are brands imagining the future? Are they kind of in a position to co-create the future? And that was a kind of measure that we tested by looking at annual reports for mentions of the future, mentions of words like long-term, but also thinking about our brands being um, consumer-centric. So we looked through all of their annual reports for mentions of Um, the consumer or the customer or the user how much are they putting the person that's buying their things at the heart of their business Um, and then also on long-term planning the idea of sustainability so we measured whether anyone in their business actually had a c-suite title within sustainability the third measure was around innovation so really learning about products that will exist in the future are brands funding them how much are they putting into research and development innovation is important innovation is very important for brands to be fit for the future so number four is brand stretch and purpose and so for this it was around brands that have a sense of purpose that are able to engage the consumer both now and in the future Um, and I think you know this idea of brand stretch was really interesting because it's you know, if you are in a category, can you move into another category and retain that kind of credibility? Um, so that, there were some really kind of interesting measures there. Um, number five was around conscious businesses. So take our brands taking responsibility for, you know, the world that we all share. Are they behaving 
ethically, you know, we talk more and more around consumers demanding that transparency from um, from the brands that they buy from. So that was a really big one. Um, and then finally around this idea of thriving employees. So we looked at whether brands were supporting their employees in their desire to improve, optimize, um, and better themselves. And that's really about testing whether brands are ensuring that they have access to the best talent in the future. Amazing. And how would people get access to the index if they wanted to check it out? Is that something that they can buy or is it available online or, or how's it published? Yeah, absolutely. We drop me an email. There you go. Drop Victoria an email and you get a copy. But um, I think it's great. I think, um, you know, from just from a financials point of view, like if you're going to invest in a business, I think that's a really interesting thing to be looking at. And the thing that really reassured me is that a lot of the stuff that you guys weight reasonably heavily from the looks of it is actually stuff that's good for the world, you know, good for the planet, good for the, the, t the employees of these businesses. And it's not just all about profit, right, at the end of the day, which I think is, is kind of the traditional measure of success in a capitalist structure. So, um, yeah, I thought it was great. And I suppose one of the things in that that, that maybe people wouldn't expect is the, the people that were top were Nike. Yeah, so Nike actually comes out as the most fit for the future brand. Um, it's one of the only apparel brands that actually ended up yeah, near that top part of the index. And Nike's fitness kind of comes from its opportunity to break into new categories and take consumers with it. Nike talks a lot about its consumer and about the future, actually twice as much as Google do. And also the context of the kind of category that it's in, fashion and kind of apparel is, you know, investing a lot in terms of innovation. Sadly for Nike, they lost some points because they actually don't have anyone in the C-suite with a role in sustainability. But I think, you know, that top spot kind of demonstrates a brand that's prepared for change. It's looking at what, it can, what its consumer needs. It's got an eye on the future. It's kind of creating a happy workforce. And then, you know, I think when you think about, shall I read out some of the brands that are on the list? So in the top five. Yeah, why don't you give us the top five? So top five, um, Nike, Microsoft, Skype, Google, and Dove. So it was, <laughs> when I saw that list. <laughs> when I from the yeah, audience on Dove. Dove. Yeah, Dove's a Unilever brand and they invest a lot in research and development. So they actually kind of. Dove kind of gets the halo effect of all of that research. Ben and Jerry's at number six, I just saw, which yeah. just made me excited about ice cream. There's no other yeah. real reason, really. Than yeah, that. and Ben and Jerry's have a very progressive business model. They're very focused on transparency. They have a really good level of diversity, female female directors. Um, so there's lots of reasons that... Um, and Ben and Jerry's also owned by Unilever, so again, they get that kind of halo effect of the parent brand too. Well, no, I think it's a really yeah. exciting piece of research, and I, I guess this is something you're going to update annually, is it? Yeah, that's the idea. But I guess, was anyone expecting Apple and Amazon to be near the top of the list? Yeah. Is there a bottom five, was the question from the audience. We, I, don't, I don't think we actually measured Uber, because they're not... Um, there was a reason that we didn't measure Uber. They don't even count yeah. as a brand, see? That, that's how badly they're doing. They're so low on the scale. Evil. But again, it's interesting, Apple and Amazon didn't come up very high, and that's because they're really untransparent about their business practices. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of tech brands that we would expect to see at the top of that list, I think you almost kind of expect that they will be up there. But actually, it's kind of quite normal to, you know, if you think about some of the tech brands that we were all using 10 years ago, and they don't exist anymore. Um, it's kind of a very competitive industry, and not a lot of those brands are really kind of preparing for the future. But obviously you've got Microsoft and Google up there who are obviously doing a great job. Yeah, Microsoft, the reinvention kings, yeah. really. Yeah, particularly recently. And so, um, so that's Future Fit Brands, everybody, and a fascinating piece of work. And do email Victoria and get a copy of it. It's, it's really great to have a flick through it. And I think we can all learn a lot about how to make our own businesses and, and the, you know, the businesses of our clients better from, uh, from, from the work that they've done. And so moving on. A topic that we've talked about throughout many of our episodes, yeah. Alexa Stop, <laughs> is ethics. I think uh, the reason I sort of butted in there, Rob, is yeah. that I, I feel that, you know, everyone will know really I represent ethics uh, in this <laughs> team. <laughs> I think you are the man to talk on the subject of ethics, Jim. Absolutely. And so on that basis, uh, I just thought I would say that, you know, ethics, user experience, customer experience, artificial intelligence have run through many, many of our episodes. Uh, and this is an area that you've worked in a lot and you've got some feelings about, Victoria. Yes, I haven't worked in it. I don't know a lot about the technology, I would say. But yeah, it kind of struck me, I would say maybe six months ago, you know, this future that we're kind of hurtling towards. We're not actually really stopping to kind of question what some of these technologies are designed for, what they're actually 
the kind of metrics around them, how we use them. And so, yeah, I kind of had this idea of, you know, if brands are starting to... I mean, we're basically developing behavioural addiction when it comes to our technology. Um, you know, this idea that we're living in the attention economy, that brands kind of just want our eyeballs and content and they don't actually care about anything kind of beyond that. Um, so for me, I was kind of really interested in how do we actually design technology um, for better? How do we actually design a digital resistance? And there was a, a lamp that you... Uh yeah the, work, yeah, the work of Skylar Jensen. This is something I saw Victoria talk about at uh, a conference a little while ago. It's an amazing, I think he's from New York, you said, an amazing designer called Skylar Jensen who's created this little lamp that connects to all of your devices and it detects if there's a conversation going on in the room. And if it detects uh, you know, that there is conversation happening, it disables all of the notifications on your devices, which I think is just such a simple and powerful thing. And it's this idea of like, you know, like you say, disruption and, and that sort of digital resistance concept, which I think was fascinating. Are you add anything on that? Yeah, I think just this idea that, you know, we, we need to start demanding from the people that design our technology that they actually take things like our mental health into consideration because I think we're kind of at, on the brink of a mental health crisis and I think what's really exciting is that we are now starting to see these really creative ideas and solutions that allow us to be in the moment to be present you know it's kind of comes back to that age-old question of what it means to be human you know are we just kind of outsourcing all of our emotions to our technology um, and yeah, I think it's, it's kind of going to be the battle of the next decade, I think, in many ways. Yeah, I totally agree. Taking us back to a topic that we talked about uh, previously was um, you talked about a beauty contest that was uh, judged by AI. Is that right? I thought this was a super, super fascinating story. Yeah, I'm quite interested in... I saw this a quote a couple of weeks ago. There's an artificial intelligent beauty contest and the founder of it had said, you know, in the future, maybe we should be worrying about how technology will perceive us. And I was kind of thinking, well, that's a bit strange. I'm already worried enough about what all of my friends think of me, what my mum and dad think of me. And now I've got to start worrying about what artificial intelligence thinks of me too. Um, but, you know, we're kind of starting to see in the beauty space, smart mirrors that have artificial intelligence inside of them, facial recognition, like you see there, where it can scan your face and tell you how to apply your makeup. Um, and then, yeah, we saw this new artificial intelligence beauty contest. Um, so this idea that we're starting to almost kind of give that kind of godlike role to technology and allow it to actually kind of judge our beauty, I think is a really interesting, um, starts to kind of raise some really interesting ethical questions. Um, and yeah, the artificial intelligence beauty contest, of course, because it was programmed by humans, it had implicit bias in it. All of the people that won the contest were kind of white, Nordic looking people it almost was kind of the same result as if a human had actually judged it so they were kind of saying you know we're going to be able to remove the bias by giving this decision making over to artificial intelligence but actually all it did was kind of reinforce the bias that was already in the humans that were programming it. Yeah so AI sort of becomes bigoted quicker because it analyzes all of our actual data and goes you guys are kind of fucked up I know how to be fucked up really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah, about right, isn't it? Like, yeah. like, what was it? Tay tweets the Microsoft thing that was a Nazi in thirty seconds or whatever it was. Yeah, had to pull it. That's, that's quick. <laughs> um, where, where are we going from here? <laughs> Never mention Nazis. Okay, so um, look, it's been a fascinating talk going through some of the trends that you forecast for twenty seventeen and and sort of analysing where they you know where they ended up and um, I think you were very accurate with a lot of that, right? Like, I think a lot of that really has come to the fore. Let's talk now about twenty eighteen to wrap up. I think it'd be great to to cover. What's coming next? What should we be looking out for? You know, maybe you could give us your top three predictions for 2018 or, or just some different things that you're really excited about. Yes, yeah, so I'm really excited about women designing for women. I think within the tech space, there's a huge, massive problem that um, women have not had products designed for them, that really technology is not being created that actually understands how women live. Um, so I think it's kind of exciting that we're starting to see more funding into female-led businesses, more women getting into the kind of senior positions within tech spaces. Um, and I think that's going to be really exciting to then see the types of products that start to come to the market. Um, you know, I think it was when Apple launched its um, smartwatch, it launched without a period tracker, which is like the one thing that women actually regularly every month have. So it's kind of just this idea that I think 
in the next year we're going to really start to see technology coming through that really understands the lives of women um, and women really kind of creating the brands that they want to see within that space which I think is really exciting. And so do you think there's there's been some changes in organisations in 2017 that will enable some of the things to come out in 2018 or do you think that, that we'll see the manifestations will be sort of late 2018, 2019? Yeah I think I guess the whole thing that happened with the um everything that happened with that kind of google manifesto i think shone a really big light on the tech industry um and then you can start to see you know everything that's happened even just over the last couple of weeks in terms of the harassment and the kind of online fever that that's now created um so i think tech brands are definitely having to kind of wake up to this as an issue and they're really going to start to kind of invest in this problem so that's number one number one by women for women in tech but i hate that word yeah. Like giving like that's the that's worst bad, bit of the job, it? giving everything trend names. Okay, um, number two or or a second one. I think we're going to continue to see this idea of ethics being questioned. I was just reading last week about this new artificial intelligence religion that's now being set oh, up God, in San Francisco. There was a piece the other day about you know can we have an artificial intelligent president? I think. Can we stop and rewind a little bit? I mean. I mean, you know, I'd just take an intelligent president, but uh, for, <laughs> in for the some US. people. So I didn't see the story about an artificial intelligence religion. Yeah, How so, does that work? So there's a guy in Silicon Valley who is basically setting up what is a version of Scientology to worship at the altar of artificial intelligence. Um, and if anyone has time, yeah, go and read the interview that they did with him on um, Wired. It's very... Spine-chilling? Yeah. I mean, I just, like... This idea of worshipping an algorithm is fucked, isn't it? Unless like, you write it, Rob. Unless you write it. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, and, and I thought they, they illustrated it. I think it was Word that illustrated it beautifully. And they had these sort of people yeah. worshipping at this sort of huge sort of colossus robot thing. And yeah. I don't know. It just, the whole idea fills me with dread that somebody could come up with that and not only come up with it but actually quite a lot of people seem to think it's a really good idea yeah and I guess the reason that I bring it up is because it's all coming at a time when we're we're increasingly kind of losing faith in the institutions around us so I think you know whether the AI religion is going to become something that anyone actually adopts is another thing but just this idea that you know as humans it's kind of our human nature to kind of, you know, bond together around these types of things. That's kind of why faith has become such an important thing. So I think almost is there kind of a space for technology to actually help us update faith in real time and create something that is actually, um, that we can kind of all kind of get around. Because I think, you know, religion is declining. It's not something that necessarily is working for younger people anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, that's kind of something that I'm, it's not necessarily a prediction, but something that I'm really interested to see how that's going to kind of unfold in the next year. Jordan, I found yeah. the copy of Wired. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, Rogue AI, I think, is probably the, uh, the part of the yeah. magazine. Thumbing through. Talking about that. Thumbing through Wired there. And, and third and final, let's have, a, let's have a final prediction for 2018 oh, okay. from you. Okay. This one's going to be a bit more uplifting. The, I think next year we're going to see a huge shift towards um, technology becoming more emotional to it really understanding our emotional needs. So we're already starting to see consumers are saying that they want to see artificial intelligence with emotional intelligence. Um, You know, the iPhone, the new iPhone is going to have its facial tracking. um, So it will be able to kind of recognize the emotions, um, which I love that they demonstrated that by showing how you can turn yourself into the poo emoji Um, but actually what that is really doing is it's they can see the expression on your face and actually see what mood you're in Um, so I think we're kind of getting into this space now where people are starting to kind of we've kind of let technology into some of the most intimate parts of our lives Um, and I think increasingly people are going to look for that emotional connection back from the technology that they're experiencing. And that the technology is capable of delivering it as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think there's a generation of people coming that are sort of, do you think we've hit peak sort of uh, interaction with our devices and the generation that's coming through are actually a bit more savvy to like not being completely overawed by social media and technology and actually uh, we're on our path to a sort of more um, a future where we're sort of more in control of our relationship with technology? I would love to say yes. I would like to think that's the case. I think what's, what's really interesting is when we think about millennials, we always talk about them as being like digital natives and early adopters of technology. When you think about 
the children that are being born today that are going to grow up commanding Amazon Alexa. I think that is a whole different relationship with technology. Um, and definitely, you know, we're starting to see devices that are almost kind of for parents, allowing them to kind of give over some of that decision-making to the Amazon Alexa. And so I think that's kind of a space that I'm definitely going to be watching over the next year, how children are starting to kind of grow up in this new landscape of voice and what that's going to do. So you'll see things like the parenting skills. You decide whose parenting skill to install. Oh, God. Uh, and, uh, and you go, uh, who looks after your children? Uh, well, the Sky parenting uh, app uh, in association with the cooking channel. Yeah. Uh, looks after my children. I think that's a great moment to end, honestly. <laughs> Please can I have a massive round of applause for our amazing guest, Victoria Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining us today. There we go. That was Alexa Stop. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, please stay and have a drink. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, Victoria.